congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of those stories, perhaps the or one of the most famous stories in the Bible that uh, is a favorite, favorite especially of kids, especially of boys. And I was reminded of this a while ago now. My son is, our oldest son is 13, but about eight, eight years ago, he was around five years old. He uh, was playing uh, soccer. It was his first year playing soccer, and uh, the coach's son was a bit, a little bit hard to handle. Kind of wild, didn't listen, uh, always kind of holding everything up. And so one day after soccer practice, I asked my son. I said, "Elijah, how did it go?" Oh, it went okay. I said, "How you know how did it go with Ivan today, the coach's son?" He says, "Well, he was a bit of an uncircumcised fella." <clears throat> like. <laughs> Where did that come? Well, it came from here. We'd been reading through 1 Samuel, and constantly we hear these words, you know, this, this, this uncircumcised Philistine, and especially in here. My son has no idea, you know, what any of that meant, uh, but he knew that it meant, you know, someone who was maybe wild and a bit rebellious. Well, this story, this story not only is it an exciting one, fun one, there, there's lots of, you can, you can tell the author here is an extremely well-written author. He knows how to build suspense as he, as he brings us into that moment when David and Goliath meet. But the most important part of this story is that it takes us into, and it is a reflection of the great story of the Bible, of God sending his son, the young prince, to rescue his bride from sin and Satan and hell, to marry his bride and then ride off into the sunset where they live happily ever after. This story is a microcosm of that. This is as every book we read. It's either a reflection of God's story of redemption in some way, or if it's a tragedy, if it ends in misery and hopelessness, then that story, that story in a sense reflects God's truth because it leaves us with longing for something that only God can truly provide, that is rescue, liberation, and hope. So that's what this story is about. Yes, it takes place on the ground, boots on the ground, in Israel, fighting Philistia. It is a rescue for the land of Israel. And we'll see that, certainly. But of course, it is far more than that. And I think for many of us, that, that's, that's obvious to us that this, this is a picture of the cross, Satan and Jesus. And so I don't think there are, are, will be any surprises there. But I want what I want us to do then is not look for necessarily new things we're going to learn today, but to rejoice in the gospel, immerse ourselves in the story, God's story of salvation, and see our place in it and our hope, our hope realized in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was typified in David here. We'll see that God reveals David as Israel's deliver, deliverer. God reveals David as Israel's deliverer. He in the previous chapter, just as a, a bit of context, David was anointed by Samuel. That's when we are first introduced to Jesse, to his sons. David is anointed. He receives the Holy Spirit. The Spirit leaves Saul. And in God's amazing providence, David, the next king, Saul doesn't know that yet, David is brought into Saul's service to play the harp for him when he's in one of his moods, brought on by an evil spirit. But now David is going to be revealed. Again, Saul still doesn't know that he's the anointed one, but it won't take long. 
because we see the character of a king here. We see one who is inspired by the Spirit, who is, sorry, equipped by the Spirit. A shepherd king, ready to defend his people for the honor of God's name, just as well as he's, he's been prepared to defend his sheep. God reveals David as Israel's deliverer. We'll see the victory of faith in David. We'll see the victory of God reflected in David's um, defeat of Goliath. And then finally, we'll see the victory of his saints. Where's our place in this story? The victory of faith, the, the, the setting, the valley of Ella. Uh, set up on either side is the army of the Philistines. The Philistines are Israel's arch enemies during this period, probably about 100 years prior to this, maybe 150 years prior to this. They arrived on the coast of Palestine. The sea peoples, they were one of the sea peoples that arrived probably from ancient Greece, uh, during the Dark Ages, the Greek Dark Ages, when the lights went out, and, and historians to this day don't know what happened in Greece, but something big happens. And all these sea peoples begin arriving in Canaan or Palestine, including the Philistines. And so the, the name Palestine today comes from the word Philistine or Palisette. Anyways, these Philistines are their arch enemies. They are gathered up sort of Iliad-style, against the Israelites. And I say Iliad style because just like in the Iliad, we have Achilles and we have Hector and so forth. So here we have Goliath, battle by champion, send a guy out to fight me if he's got the guts. What he's offering is battle by champion that rather than everyone shedding their blood on the battlefield, each side will just send one guy and that will decide the battle. One representative, one representative, um, from the Philistine, the uncircumcised, that is the godless, the idolatrous, the God-hating, God-rejecting side, and, and one from the side of the, of the people of God. And Saul seems to have accepted this setup because day after day they go out to fight and then Goliath says, why are we all here? I'm a Philistine, you're servants of Saul, send a guy and let's do this. Battle by champion. Now suddenly, the camera switches over to Bethlehem. And we're off the field of battle and we're in the pasture land and it's green and there are sheep, it's fluffy. And we're wondering why we're getting reintroduced to David again. And then just after we've been introduced to David and his brothers, then we switch back to the field of battle. I think you see that in verse 17. And we hear about Goliath coming out to face the Israelites every day. And then we're back to Bethlehem, cheese and bread and so forth. And then back, and it goes back and forth. Well, what the author is doing is he's, he's building up that battle of champions so that we understand, just like in a movie when we see a scene over here and a main character and the scene over here and a main character, they don't know each other yet, but we know as we flip back and forth, there's about to be a showdown. They're going to meet in this story. That's what the author's doing. He's foreshadowing. He's building up that th this is, yes, battle by champion, two representatives, one from the kingdom of Satan, one from the kingdom of God, are going to meet this day and we know it's going to be David. That's, David doesn't know it yet. Goliath doesn't know it, but we know it. This is God's anointed, and he speaks like a king. When he arrives on the field of battle, yes, Eliab. Eliab says, you snot-nosed little punk. You know, what are you doing here? Get out of here. David is not deterred. He just says, hey, what gives? You know, can I even say anything anymore? And eventually news gets around that he's wondering why, why nobody's stepping up. He's like, guys, they... 
He's defying the armies of the living God. Won't someone take this reproach away from Israel? This is, this is a reflection of God's name, or it's against God's name and his reputation. He gets an audience with Saul. He says, I'll do it. Saul says, you can't. You don't know how to fight. David says, I've been killing bears and lions for a while now. Not that that's the big point, but rather the big point here is his faith. He says, the God who rescued me from them will also give Goliath into my hand. God's been good to me in the past. He's been faithful. And I know he will give the victory in this situation as well. Why? Because God's honor is at stake. And God has promised of all the things, this will happen. That he will glorify his name. And he has set his name upon us, guys. Why aren't we fighting? I will. For the sake of God's name. And we'll hear hear about that a little bit more later. But we see David looking back on God's faithfulness. The victory of faith is, of course, not a victory ultimately of our faith, but of the the object of our faith. And that's for David here. It's the object of his faith. He's not boasting about lions and bears because it's all about him and how good he is at this because of God's faithfulness in the past. One of my treasured possessions was handed down to me from my grandmother on my mom's side. In fact, all of us grandkids have this, and that is a book that she wrote for us called Memories, in which she tells her whole life story through the war and Holland and everything, hiding Jews and so forth. Amazing what she went through. And her message for us all, for all of us grandkids is, God is faithful, and you rest in him, and you cling to Christ. Please do not forsake him. He's been faithful to me, and he will be faithful to you. And that's what our faith today and tomorrow, and all the way until Christ calls us home or returns again, that's what fuels our faith. So God has been faithful in the past. That's the victory of faith. We see the victory of faith also in the fact that when David is given Saul's armor, you know, he tries moving around, and he says, forget this. I don't need this. Saul assumes that if you're going to fight Goliath, you better be carrying the same armor that he is. And David says, no, I won't need that. And now, and this, this is an important aspect of the story. David is the youngest. He's, this, he's a youth. Saul says, you can't do this. This guy's a man of war. He's been fighting since he was a baby. How are you possibly going to do this? Well, David's point is, I'm going to do this, but I won't need your armor. The battle is the Lord's. Now, it's not the fact that he uses a sling and the five stones that emphasizes his weakness. For we do know that slingers were fairly formidable enemies in those days. Judges 20, verse 16, we read that the Benjamites, 700 of them, were left-handed and they were skilled with the sling. And it turns out in warfare back then, slingers were quite common. So for David, he's skilled at this. He's good at this. He's using a skill that God has given to him, and it ends up being very effective in this fight with Goliath. That's not the aspect where we see the weakness so much as when he says, I don't want your armor. And that's why the text goes into those kinds of details. The same bronze armor that Goliath is wearing, Saul wants David to wear. The point is this, David says, no. The battle is the Lord's. We don't fight our enemy. 
on the same basis that they do. Our trust is not in our weapons, but our trust is in the Lord. This is ultimately a battle between the gods of Philistia and the God of Israel. And God will equip me for this battle. I don't go in worldly strength, but I go in the strength of the Lord, and so it is for us. How often is it not the case that we come to these points in our lives and we think, I've been living on my own steam. I've not been engaging with God in in His Word as I ought to be. My prayer life has suffered, and I'm living out of my own strength. The busyness of life has me going from one thing to the next, trying to conquer it in my own power, and that's ultimately a place of emptiness. We can't get far that way. We need the strength of the Lord the victory of faith, of resting in Him in our weakness. So there we see the victory of faith, that David is showing himself to be the truly chosen one of God. Saul stopped listening a while ago, and the Spirit has left him. The Spirit has come upon David. God has told Samuel, this is the man of my choosing. And we see David being just that. While Saul sits around waiting for someone else to go, David's ready to go because he trusts in the Lord. It's not the strength of his faith, but it's the unfailing power and faithfulness of his God. And so we're ready to see the victory of God that comes next. David steps forward with his five nearly baseball-sized stones in his sling. Goliath steps forward and says, this is ridiculous. Um, Am I a dog that you're going to come at me with sticks? He's trash-talking David and the Israelites. But David's got his bit of his own, doesn't he? Tough words. He says, you come to me with a sword and whatnot, but I come to you in the name of of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day... He will deliver you into my hand. I will cut off your head today, Goliath. And the bodies of the Philistines will be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. That is tough talk. That is covenant trash talking, we might say. But it's not about David's toughness. The point of his words is very clear in the last part of verse 46 and then verse 47 that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. And this is where David is acknowledging for us all so clearly this is about God's battle. It's, It's God's victory. Goliath has been defying the armies of Israel. That means he's been defying the living God who has set his name on them and that's not for you to do, Goliath. God will honor his name today. Which then moves into missionary words. We see, we see you know, uh, birds and beasts, you know, threatening to, to eat these bodies and heads being cut off and so forth. But we shouldn't miss that these are missionary words. That David is saying today, the earth will know that there is a God in Israel and that he saves not with sword and spear. 
Ultimately, it's not just about the destructions of the Philistine army here, but it's about the salvation of the world. This has always been God's salvation mission. And David is a part of that. And he'll sing later on in in the Psalms about the nations coming to know the Lord. And that's what he wants them to know here. This This is ultimately, ultimately, we can see the setup here. We've got David from the covenant people of God. We've got Goliath from Philistia, and he's cursing David and Israel in the name of his gods. And we have David saying, you come to me with your sword and spear. You you represent your gods, but I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. And today the earth will know that there is a God, there is a living God, a one true God in Israel. And so it's made plain to us, yes, yes, this is what God has been promising all along. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent throughout the history of the world will be like this. And throughout the Old Testament, we see that Satan trying to swallow up Christ before he can even arrive. And that's what he's trying to do here. The Israelites will serve the Philistines. And the covenant people of God will be brought under the foot of the evil one. But God has promised no No, the seed of the woman will crush the seed, the head of the seed of the serpents. And that is demonstrated here. This is one of those kinds of victories as David slings that stone, nails him in the forehead. Goliath falls either dead or unconscious or something. David cuts off his head with Goliath's own sword. It's the victory of God defending his people. In spite of their sin and their fear, God has sent a Savior because he's a missionary God because the earth will know that there is a God who truly saves. And so with the John 3.16 moment, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You bend the knee, Goliath, or you die. You bend the knee, Goliath, and you are saved. Or you defy the armies of the living God as you have done for 40 days. And you will see that there is a God in Israel who defends his name. And all the gods of the Philistines are like Goliath with their face on the ground. Victory of God. And ultimately, it's just one battle. One battle in the long years of history and the many battles that have been fought ever since. We know that this is a picture of David's greater son. What sets David apart ultimately is not that he's such a great king. He's a good king, yes. But it's that God made him a promise in 2 Samuel 7, a king will come from you. He'll have an eternal kingdom. And then Isaiah, we hear how, he, how a son... A child is born to us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Be everlasting father, prince of peace, mighty God. And that's who this is about. David's greater son, who comes like David from the appearances of the world, comes in weakness, our clothed in our weakness. He's rejected, despised, even as Saul and Eliab and Goliath despised David. 
but we see the victory of God and the victory of Christ's faith and his faithfulness that he remained obedient to the end. We, we, let, let's take this battlefield and let's go to a different battlefield. Um, many years later, about a thousand years later, and that battlefield is the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus has just told his disciples, he says, the prince of the world is coming. This is his hour of darkness. Then he comes to the garden and he says, I'm so sad that I could die. And he prays to the Father three times, Father, if it's your will, take this from me. I I don't want to do this. Why? Well, he knows he's facing down the hordes of hell alone. When his Father turns his face away, he will face the wrath of God alone. As the Father turns his face away, that he, he represents everything. All of God's people. God's victory. God's kingdom. All of that. The salvation of all of his people rests here in Gethsemane in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our guilt saddled upon him. He clothed in our weakness. And he goes, yes, as our divine king, but also as a human king, taking our place. And he feels every bit of this fully in his humanity. So he says, I'm so sad I could die. And he sweats drops of blood. But what's his goal? He said it all through the gospel of John is to glorify my father in heaven. And so he says, your will be done, not mine. Whatever's necessary, necessary for your glory, O oh God, and of your name, and of your mission. So he's praised three times, and he has his answer, and he stands up, our champion. He rises, and he says, let's go. It's time to go. Battle by champion. Not through sword and spear, but through the obedience of the cross. He takes our place. Because what we needed more than some heads rolling as our sins taken away and paid for. And that's why we read in Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul telling us about our freedom and our liberty in Christ. He says, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is, we are all Goliaths, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way. That is the record of our sin and all of God's condemnation against it and all of Satan's rightful accusations to say, see, sinner, sinner, he deserves to perish. God took that all away, nailing it to the cross. Jesus paying the penalty, our guilt, laying upon him. Applied to him. So the Apostle Paul says, he took that away having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public, public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So he takes the sin away. And in so doing, he not only rescues us from our sin, but he also delivers the death blow to Satan. Battle by champion, the victory of God at the cross of Christ, right when Satan is doing his victory dance. Just like David took Goliath's sword and killed him with his own weapon, 
So Satan, Satan trying, thinking he's finally devoured Christ at the cross. Well, that cross is his undoing, his destruction, hoist with his own petard, as Shakespeare would say. And so the victory of God then becomes the victory of his saints. For in this battle of champion, Jesus has come to take our place, right? To be our covenant representative. And that's where covenants is not just a doctrine we, we, you know, that's, that's out there and abstract, but covenants is a doctrine that links the God of heaven and earth to us, in which he places his name upon us, and he takes our place in Christ. Not only to, to take away the guilt of our sin, but also now reigning from heaven as our eternal king gives us this promise, Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors with, in Christ. In Hebrews 2, the author says that Jesus uh, took on the place of his children became like his brothers in every way except for sin. In order what? To deliver us from death that held us in bondage to fear. He went into the belly of the beast. He strangled it, battle by champion. And we can be set free from that bondage and from that fear. But more than that, that he can be a merciful and faithful high priest in that he himself has suffered being tempted He is able to aid those who are tempted. So here you go into this week. And if you've got your sins that you struggle with, and sometimes you think, I'm too weak. You know, I'm too weak. I don't think I can face those sins today or this week. Who's going to help me? Or you've got the challenges of the day, uh, of the week. Maybe maybe life is just really, really hard right now. And and you don't think you've got the wisdom, you've got the chutzpah to get through this. Or maybe life itself, maybe existence itself is too painful that you f- feel like you can't even go on or you look at the world around you and, and you think, what's going on? The darkness seems to be closing in and you're, you're tempted to, to just sit there and fret and worry and constantly talk about how everything's against us. Well, here's our hope. This is the victory of Christ's saints. He is a real person and he lives and reigns and by faith you are united to him so that you don't live your life in yourself, you live it in him. That's the promise of Galatians 2. The life I live, I no longer live. You know, in me, but I live in Christ through faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. And he promises, he prays for you, and he promises to be your high priest to help you in your time of need. So you go back out into the fray. First of all, liberated because you have been forgiven of your sins through your, in Christ Jesus as you trust in him. And you also go back out, out into the fray, resting in him. Confidence. Confident that in our weakness, in my insufficiency, he is sufficient He is my strength. And so help me, Lord Jesus. I don't know what to do. I'm too weak. But help me, Lord Jesus. And that is a prayer. When you pray that in faith, when you mean that, when you seek him with your heart, that he will never turn away, but that he will answer.
Amen. Let's stand to sing hymn number.